I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending July 24th. In this episode, Tom Wong, Director of Marketing at Cadence Design Systems, recently wrote an article for EE Times talking about Moore's Law and, more importantly, what comes after, sometimes called more than more. We'll have a discussion with Wong about where the IC industry is and where it's heading. Also, big doings in the automotive market. Ford Motor said it has signed a long-term contract with Mobileye for driver assist technology. What will that mean for cars of the not-too-distant future? Car manufacturers are notorious for trying to keep their options open with their suppliers. Reasonably so, perhaps, given that they're working on products four to five years in advance. And technology can change quite a bit in just a few short years. So it was a bit of a surprise when Ford Motor just committed to a single supplier and driver assist technology, sometimes referred to as ADAS. That supplier is Mobileye, which makes vision processing ICs and software for driver assist systems. The company was founded in Israel in 1999. Three of its first customers began using its products in 2007. Since then, Mobileye has quietly built a dominating position in the market. By 2016, Mobileye's technology could be found in over 300 car models around the world. Intel bought the company in 2017 for $15 billion. 25 different automakers currently use Mobileye products. Mobileye calls its chip the IQ. The company's latest generation of the IQ product line is the IQ5. The list of Mobileye customers is known to include General Motors, Nissan, Audi, BMW, Honda, and Fiat Chrysler. Ford is also known to have been a customer. International editor Junko Yoshida wrote about Ford's decision this week to use Mobileye's hardware and software for its global product lines. In the electronics industry, it's common for a company to pick just one major supplier for a key component. It might be a microprocessor for a laptop or the RF subsystem for a smartphone, though they might have second sources for some components. But electronics are relatively new for the auto industry. I asked Junko if it was common for car OEMs to have multiple suppliers. Oh, definitely, they do. And uh, as you mentioned, yes, the uh, using electronics inside vehicles are you know relatively new, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, sort of striking a deal with somebody like Mobile Eye. Mobile Eye isn't just a hardware company; it actually uh, offers entire lineup of software that built on top of their hardware platform. Mm-hmm. So it's a very trusted partner. And in this sense, it's uh, kind of interesting that Ford actually publicly said that we're going to do all the ADAS uh, products in our lineup with Mobileye. That commitment uh, is actually really unheard of, actually. Wow. So uh, what does this actually mean for Ford's vehicles? What specific assists to a driver are, can we expect to see coming in, in Ford vehicles as they, as they adopt the Mobileye technology? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a usual uh, uh, 
enchilada Oveda systems <laughs> like uh, um, it's uh, it's lane uh, keeping, lane keeping uh, you know pre-collision assist yeah. you know the auto- automatic emergency braking um, intelligence adaptive cruise control that sort of thing okay all right yeah. now um, Ford isn't actually the only company that's gone with with one supplier. Didn't Mercedes-Benz just decide they're putting all of their eggs in the NVIDIA basket? Yeah, we, we wrote a story about uh, the, the Mercedes uh, handed the key to the car to uh, <laughs> NVIDIA, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, the, as the system solutions get more and more complicated, it's not just you can... You take this out, plug this in. It's not plug and play. You have to choose. You have to pick a lane. And I think that's what's happening here. Yeah. So, so the uh, these types of deals, as uh, it's it sounds as if the auto industry has figured out, um, you know, perhaps philosophically, what they're going to be doing with their cars, driver mm-hmm. assist. Mm-hmm. And and autonomy is a separate thing. Um, mm-hmm. are, are are these kind of deals in your in your mind? Does, do these deals seem like they're they're indicating that uh, um, the auto industry has figured out where they we finally figured out where they ought to go the next few years? Um, I wouldn't go that far. No, that they okay. have figured out, but but I think this is sort of like a ne- by necessity. Uh-huh. Um, the automotive industry is actually the hardest hit of all the different you know industries, uh, except for aviation, I guess, uh, in the pandemic era. Yeah, nobody's People, nobody's traveling. Yeah, yeah nobody's traveling, and nobody's uh, have enough money to buy new models, uh, new car models. So, right. uh, uh, so, so their their business is. Uh, really in a, you know, hard place. So they don't have, many car companies don't have luxury to, you know, try with five different companies uh, and, uh, you know, take their time and think about their strategy. No, if they have to do ADAS for the next five years, they have to pick a partner. And uh, they have become more, aggressive in terms of partnership and more discipline in the content of a partnership, I think, rather than, um, you know, the doing the deals with five different companies and see what it sticks, you know, it's sort of spaghetti on the wall kind of strategy. (laughs) I think things have changed. They're they're, they're a lot more disciplined and a lot more focused. All right. Uh, what does this mean for the auto industry? What what is this? Are we likely to see uh, uh, vehicles with this technology in coming up next year, the year after that, five well, years? Well, actually, what is this? we already have. A, we we already have uh, ADAS cars. Uh, uh, many of them are on the market. In fact, uh, if uh, I may rattle off some numbers, Mobile Eye has been supplying this ADAS solutions for the last several years. Mm-hmm. So, from what I understand, that there are already 600 million ADAS cars out there on the market. Wow. And there are, uh, that, that's the cumulative number, right? right and right. in terms of models, I think there are 300 models from 25 manufacturers. So it's, 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 it's prevalent. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, there, there are more advanced features coming in, but the, generally speaking, ADAS is going to stay 
in the high end. But mm-hmm. we are what we're talking about over the next five years, it's going to be all over the place, not just high end, you know, the middle end, it's even, gonna, even uh, low end. You know, the, I, was, I was talking to the auto industry uh, analyst, uh, Egil Juliusen, the other day, and he suggests probably by 2025, uh, uh, mobile eye probably supply something like, um, you know, their chips, uh, IQ3 or IQ4, those ADAS chips, uh, to Ford, something like uh, in the order of 4 million units. Wow. That's a lot. That's that's a volume. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Uh, if I recall correctly, he's uh, talking about maybe 4 million units out of the 5 million that they produce each year. Yeah. Well, they, right now, they, Ford already produces 4 million, but that's like the entire cars, right? right so right. they're not all ADAS and with only a handful of them. But by 2025, um, that number will go up to 5 million, but out of 5 million, give or take 4 million will be ADAS, you know, mobile eye ADAS equipped cars. That's what he's uh, suggesting. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that is, it is getting prevalent now. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what's the big takeaway? What should we, uh, what should we look for from the auto industry moving forward? Well, there, there are a couple of things that I just want to mention that uh, part of the reason that the Mobile Eye got this deal, two things. Mm-hmm. One is that the Mobile Eye, as I said, they just don't make chips or uh, supply software. They actually have a really smart strategy called um, Road Experience Management. They called it REM. And uh, that's um, sort of like crowdsource mapping strategy. And uh, as long as somebody's, you know, your car is equipped the mobile eyes uh, ADA system, that becomes automatically, you know, your car is picking up uh, some changes on the road, you know, signage or the uh, free space or whatever. I mean, it's like the, 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 the because roads are constantly changing, you know, map itself. Yeah, they're generally it's it's probably the same, but the details of the how you can drive on certain road constantly changing. So they're picking up all the differences in this um, what they call REM road experience management mapping system, and the, the mobile eye is making a huge inroad in that mapping system. So the uh, from what I gather is like uh, more than three million cars already equipped with this uh, uh, mobilized uh, ADAS system that are committed to supply to this uh, you know part of the crowdsourcing ecosystem. Companies like BMW, Nissan, and Volkswagen they're all committed working with Mobileye on this road experience management system, and I think. Ford wants to be part of that too, so that they can benefit. They're 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 uh, uh, you know down the down the line. Um, it, not only the ADAS, but also autonomous vehicles will benefit from that crowdsourced data of the road. And data is the thing when you're all selling fewer cars. Yeah, you, yep. you know, people are holding onto their cars for way longer than they used to. We're talking about. Uh, uh, you know, over-the-air updates, just like Tesla's been doing, right? Um, and uh, and the data becomes the thing. Yeah. So the mobile eye, actually, they said something like, uh, uh, in 2025, 25 million vehicles will use REM road 
experience yeah, uh, management system. It's very smart. Data's taken over the world. There you go. All right. Thanks, <laughs> okay. Junko. Thank you. Junko's story is called Ford Goes All In with Mobileye and ADAS. It's on the website at eetimes.com. Yeah, we used to try to write more interesting headlines. Now, we've got some software design to help us get more traffic on the web that insists that writing interesting headlines is counterproductive. I whine about that in an editorial I wrote last week called Google is Stupid. You can Google it. You can't hold a conference these days in meet space or virtually without at least one panel discussion about Moore's Law. Is it dead already or dead only for some types of ICs? If it's not dead, will it be dead soon? Moore's Law is generally considered to be this. The number of transistors on a die will double every two years or so, and sometimes that comes with a corollary that the cost will remain approximately the same. Intel itself used to state it that way, but if you actually go back to the paper written by Gordon Moore when he was at Fairchild, he barely even mentions transistors, and he certainly doesn't mention transistors doubling. He refers to the number of components in a circuit, and he wrote that he expects that number to increase, and he did discuss how he expects that to affect costs. Less famous but related is Dennard scaling. Robert H. Dennard wrote a paper about MOSFETs the year before Moore published, in which he proposed that as transistors get smaller, their power density stays constant, so that the power use stays in proportion with area. Combining Moore's Law with Dennard scaling essentially means that performance per watt grows even faster, doubling about every 18 months. Moore's original paper doesn't say anything about the number of transistors doubling, so Moore's Law to paraphrase a certain philosopher, is more what you'd call guidelines than actual rules. Welcome aboard the Black Pearl, Miss Turner. Basically, the people who treat Moore's Law as a metaphor for progress are quite justified in doing so. Tom Wong is currently the Director of Marketing in the IP Group at Cadence Design Systems. He started his semiconductor career at National Semiconductor, worked at Hitachi, did a stint at a fascinating little company that does layout optimization called Takumi Technology. And just before joining Cadence in 2013, he did a short stint at Global Foundries. Tom recently wrote an article for us called Moore's Law Isn't Slowing Down, Just Ask System Companies. I think that's firmly on the side of not dead yet. But the real point of his article is that the industry will continue to innovate with semiconductor technology and silicon technology. Progress will continue. Tom referred to this as more than more. We invited Tom on to dive deeper into the subject. Part of the reason people talk about the end of Moore's Law is because the industry is beginning to approach some of the limits of some of the physical properties of silicon. So that's what I asked him about first. What are the limits we're facing? That's actually very interesting um, when you look at what is really the limits of Moore's Law. Is it um, the equipment? Is it the cost that is so cost prohibitive that you can't go there because you can't afford it? Um, is it process technology? 
Uh, and by and large, when you look at the semiconductor industry, um, this is something that people don't talk about that much uh, unless you're in lithography. Um, we are at, pick a number, five nanometer today. Um, what is the wavelength of the laser for the stepper? Right. We're still running 193 uh, immersion. <clears throat> so when you think about all the stuff you learn in, in college, uh, with 193 nanometer laser, mm -hmm. the best resolution you have in photolithography is 2x. So theoretically, we will not, we shouldn't be able to build semiconductor at five nanometer with 193 uh, right. stepper. But we've been doing this for 10 years. Uh, and the trick is DFM and OPC, optical proximity correction. <laughs> that allows us to be able to build five nanometer having 193 nanometer stepper. Uh, so the technology limitation is in the, the wavelength of mm -hmm. the laser, the light source, uh, it's in the photoresist material, uh, it's in lithography, it is mass making, and that ultimately would be the machinery that you use to actually produce the silicon uh, and EUV and whatnot. So, so that's really, the, the crux of the problem. Any one of these items break, then you can't go to the next level. So it's not just uh, my transistor don't scale anymore, or CMOS is running out of juice and we need to go to other things. So really not that, mm -hmm. right? So it's a very complicated business and, and that's why it's so expensive because technology is expensive and not many companies are willing to invest. Um, think about company making uh, EUV mm -hmm. stepper, right? Every new generation stepper is that's your company strategy. You invest in a huge amount of money uh, and you may not be able to have good return on the investment. That's why you don't see five companies out there fighting for EUV stepper. Right. I mean, there is one, right? I mean, that's it. Uh, I think that's the problem. Uh, it's a combination of technology, material, um, science, and physics uh, and economics. So that's what limiting it. So that that's that's uh, the discussion about the end of Moore's law, but then the conversation uh, continues anyway with what people call beyond Moore. Um, what's the now? My understanding is the basic idea is to uh, uh, bring in a lot of the other factors that are involved. Uh, interconnect packaging um, things that uh, that affect how well any given integrated circuit works um, but maybe not uh, maybe not be involved with the integrated circuit itself maybe it's like getting signals on and off um, is that really is that essentially what we're talking about when we're talking about beyond more or are there many more techniques well, there's many more, there's beyond more, there's more than more. <laughs> um, but basically, that's really an acronym where you do not believe that a monolithic SOC is possible anymore. But in order to realize the system function and performance, you may have to use multiple pieces of silicon to realize the same function that you would have otherwise in a single monolithic mm -hmm. die. Right, that's more than more. And... Very quickly, when you use that terminology, you tie yourself into uh, TSV, 2.5D interposer, and advanced packaging. 
Uh, but one thing that people have to look at in more than more is the application. What are you trying to do? Am I trying to build a high-performance CPU, mm-hmm. GPU, or FPGA? If you are, your more and more solution is different. Then if I'm trying to build uh, an application processor for a smartphone, mm-hmm. where I have a package pop memory sitting on top of the AP, <clears throat> that's more than more. It's multi-chip packaging. Mm-hmm. Um, or you're looking at, I'm trying to build uh, a modem, mm-hmm. 4G, 5G modem, um, but I want an integrated modem. So in addition to the uh, computer circuit, the wireless uh, circuit, I have high voltage, I have RF, and I have inductors. The antennas are basically tank circuits. Uh, and how are people doing that today? They are buying chips that are digital in nature for the modem. They're buying uh, antenna and RF module that are done in some esoteric uh, processes like gallium arsenide or gallium indium mm-hmm. phosphide. Uh, and then they're having passive, uh, basically chip inductors. And they put them in a very tiny module, and then you have this wonderful single, single package modem, if you will. Uh, that's another way of looking at that. So to depend on your application. So let's step back and look at the higher level. Um, the most popular discussion about more than more is really that I can scale from seven nanometer to five and from five to three uh, because the die size is simply too large. Uh, large die don't yield very well. I mean, just facts of life based on defect density. And if I make a really large die, uh, it will be cost prohibitive. So, so what do people do in the CPU space? Uh, one thing nice about the architecture in CPU is they're all multi-core mm-hmm. now. So if I have a four-core CPU and I want to have a version with eight cores or 16 core, I can actually build a cluster with only four cores. And if I need eight, I put two of these down. If I need 16, I put four of these down. So imagine putting together a monolithic die with 16 CPU core. That's a big die. But if I put four of these four core mm-hmm. CPU into a package, all of a sudden, uh, I am economically feasible to go into multi-chip design and it's still cheaper than doing a large monolithic die. And this was um, something that people speculate for a long time without any hard data because, I mean, who is going to go and do this for experiment and spend $25, $30 million to do that? So it wasn't until middle of last year um, at Hot mm-hmm. Chips with um, Dr. Sue from right. AMD made a presentation in the keynote speech um, and she showcased uh, the, the latest AMD processor. There's a PowerPoint for that. I can actually send you that. The look at the economics of having um, a multi-chip module uh, instead of going to monolithic. That gives her the, the power and performance that you need. Uh, so that's the best indication that I'm making high-performance CPU instead of going to the 5 nanometer, 3 nanometer, a more than more solution is actually more favorable mm-hmm. from a PPA standpoint, which is amazing. And similarly, when you look at um, application for that, and this is actually get into die-to-die connectivity uh, for high-performance computing. Uh, you look at GPU, you look at FPGA, they've all gone down the same route. 
using different kinds of packaging from different supplier and different foundry. Uh, and when you look at the data center cloud computing space, mm -hmm. um, network processor, uh, high-speed connectivity, uh, 112 gig, 400 gig mm -hmm. network. When you look at the implementation, these are all multi-chip design, right? They are beginning to realize the benefits of that. And I call it a disaggregation of SOC have happened about four years ago. And now you're seeing the end products on the market. Uh, so that's another uh, direction that people are going. Uh, and then when you go into the high-end computing for data center and um, optical network, uh, photonics, how do you attach a digital IC to the laser on a substrate, right? So this is what's driving um, 400 gig uh, network using 100 gig optics. And those are all what I would call more than Morse technology. Um, so people are going there uh, already, right? That's a very high end. Uh, when you look at the um, military aerospace uh, mm -hmm. program, they're going down the same path. Uh, they have um, a 90 nanometer fab, and a lot of the technology they use are not your 60 nanometer or 10 right. nanometer. Uh, they're more mature technology. But to do what they need, uh, they're able to have a more than more uh, direction and actually get it done. So, so in a lot of these things, when you do product planning, you have to kind of step back and you say, what is it that I'm trying to do? What is the system function I want to realize? And then you decide how to go about doing it uh, that is technically feasible mm -hmm. and economically feasible. Uh, and at that point, you would decide whether um, a, a straight monolithic design and a die shrink would be the way to go to the more finer geometry. Or you would say, um, we need to go a different yeah. approach. Uh, to go multi-chip. Uh, I mean, apps processor, right? I mean, 2007, uh, 2009 timeframe, right. you see people putting a, a pop, a package on package, right? You put the LPDDR in a package on top of a package for the AP and you have this sandwich product. Right. Uh, and they ship millions. But without that, you would never be able to realize the performance of a smartphone with the kind of performance that they were getting in those days. You simply can't put DRAM and CMOS logic on the same die. Uh, the die is not large enough. And even if it is, you can't afford it. Uh, so the important thing in selecting or taking consideration of whether more, more than more is the direction you mm -hmm. want to take, you have to look at the system application. What am I trying to do? What is my economic profile? What's my performance profile? And then decide, do I go multi-die or do you go monolithic die. Uh, but increasingly, um, the direction is going to go to multi-chip simply because the cost of um, the advanced technology is so expensive. So uh, unless you're shipping, like what I wrote in the article, uh, let's say it costs you $100 million to do a mm -hmm. design. If you're shipping 100 million pieces, you're amortizing $1 a piece. How many applications that you know of that actually ship 100 million pieces? Not that right. many, but we do know a few design that ships on the order of 200 to 400 million pieces, right? So they're designed that are natural for that monolithic integration uh, and they can afford it economically, but there are also a lot of applications you simply don't have the volume. Right. 
right? So, so you find then you need to find an economic solution to it as opposed to a technical solution to it, right? And again, in the article that I wrote, one of the things that's disruptive is if I were an internet giant and I want to build a network processor uh, for my data center, right, or an AI accelerator for my data center, I don't sell chips. I sell cloud services. It's a recurring fee that my customer is paying me uh, for me to provision services right. for them. So my amortization calculation that I just described don't hold anymore because they make so much more money from recurring services. They don't have to amortize $100 million on, on a million chips because the money is not being made by selling chips. They don't sell chips. But they need this piece of advanced silicon to run at that speed so that they can provision the high-performance compute resources that the customer needs. That's where they're going. And why do they need this compute resource in this fine geometry? It's because of power consumption in data center. Right. That is why you build data center in places that are very cold, or you build things, you build data center in places where it's next to hydroelectric right. dam for the low-cost electricity. Uh, so they all play together. So you're actually scaling the thing from a chip to a hydroelectric power plant because power in this case is not the power that powers the chip or the server. It's the power that you need to power up the entire data center with a million server. Right? And this is about the, the big AC pipe and DC pipe coming into the building. Uh, so that's where things are in terms of the decision-making process. And, and that's highly disruptive yeah. uh, because you would figure that $100 million, $200 million per design is not affordable. Well, if you're building a million, or you're trying to sell a million chips a year, it's not affordable. Uh, but if you're selling 300 million chips a year, it's very affordable for a single design. But then you have these internet giant doing data center stuff where cost is no object because they can right. afford it. Because the return on investment calculation is very different. Wow, they've changed the economics. I think um, from where I stand, you know, said uh, watching a lot of a lot a, a number of very large companies drawing chip design in house um, and wondering where you know where will that stop? And the answer might be with them, right? I mean, there there are only so many companies that can can uh, take advantage of that 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 type of economics, right? When you look at um, the semiconductor mm -hmm. industry, you look at fabulous company, I think that's what you're referring yeah. to. How many of them are gonna to go to three nanometer, two nanometer, uh, because the volume is not there. Um, and, but when you look at semiconductor industry at large, um, it's an interesting observation. Um, half of the revenue of the top foundries are in geometry that, um, 16 nanometer and below. Okay. The final geometry is almost half the revenue. But then the other half of the more mature technology is still half the revenue. So you have a bifurcation. <laughs> uh, if I want to drive technology to do very sophisticated mm -hmm. things, then you go to the final geometry. Um, but my television, my rice cooker, my motor controller are never to go below 90 nanometer. And that would be around the day you and I retire. <laughs> so, so the industry is like that. But the challenge for that is in the more mature product, 
uh, unless they are specialty product, uh, you don't have the profit margin, yeah. right? I mean, how much can I sell a motor controller or four bit microcontroller compared to selling a um, 112 gig uh, optical network with photonics or selling an AI um, SOC? Yeah. So, so that's the economic equation of uh, the industry, how it's going to evolve over time. Uh, but when you look at industry also, it's quite interesting that even in 2020, with COVID-19 um, around the world, you're seeing big M&A. And you wonder when you look at that, why are people still doing $20, $30 billion M&A uh, when you don't see the economic direction, mm -hmm. right? And, and the reason is, is a semiconductor business. And if I'm going to be around five years from now, uh, I need to be number one, number two, and number three. I need to be really big. Uh, and the trend has been continuing for the last 10 years, but it seems like that the, the big ones are getting bigger, right? And for good economic reason, technical talent uh, and market share. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you see that from a technology driving business decision in M&A, uh, and that's happening as we speak. You know what's a good sign? There isn't one major semiconductor manufacturer warning anybody about having to abandon silicon anytime soon. For every session alluding to some dire end to Moore's Law, there are hundreds of papers on new advances in silicon circuit architecture and process technology. But keep reading EE Times. If the end of silicon is nigh, we'll let you know. Just about every week, we like to celebrate the anniversaries of interesting events in technology history. By the way, last week I noted that time keeps on ticking into the future. Pfft, everybody knows time keeps slipping into the future. Now, stop sending me email, okay? Okay. Now, today we're going to set our Wayback Machine to July 25th, 1959. On that day, the SRN1 serial G-12-4 crossed the English Channel from Calais to Dover in just over two hours. It was the first practical hovercraft, and it had just crossed the channel faster than the ferries were doing it at the time. The SRN1 was built by a company called Saunders Row, under a contract from the National Research Development Corporation in the UK. Saunders Row was a company that, in retrospect, seemed doomed to making bad bets on vehicle technology. The company's specialty in the 1940s and into the 1950s was flying boats. It really doesn't matter how well-engineered its flying boats were. Not enough people saw the need for a boat that could fly or for a plane that could ply the ocean waves, whichever. In the mid-1950s, the company found very short-lived success with an interceptor aircraft that was both jet and rocket-powered. The result was another fascinating hybrid that not many people wanted. In the latter half of the 1950s, the company tried to diversify into helicopters and hovercraft, and while it did okay with the engineering on both, from a financial standpoint, it was too late. The demise of the company is pretty complicated, but essentially it was sold off piecemeal. The early history of hovercraft was not encouraging. The idea was intriguing, but every early attempt ended up with a craft that was unstable. The guy who figured it out was Christopher Cockrell, 
a mechanical engineer. He accomplished it by experimenting with an empty cat food can inside an empty coffee can, along with a hair dryer. His experiment convinced him that he could produce an adequate cushion of air using an engine much smaller than most people had anticipated would be needed for a practical hovercraft. The SRN1 used a 450 horsepower radial piston engine that was made for aircraft. The engine drove a lift fan. Some of the lift was redirected into a pair of tubes that provided directional thrust. What you just heard was a completely different hovercraft, but I'd like to point out that if I hadn't mentioned it, hardly any of you would have noticed. Saunders Rowe tested, modified, and improved the SRN1. Check out this episode's webpage. We embedded some YouTube video of the Duke of Edinburgh inspecting the hovercraft. The engineers at Saunders Row let him drive it, and legend has it that he drove it so fast they begged him to slow down. He also supposedly put a permanent dent in it. The SRN1 was the first practical hovercraft, but the company was gone before it could commercialize it. Other companies hit the market with hovercraft. For instance, there was a ferry service across the English Channel in the 1960s, but these days, hovercraft are no longer practical anymore for most uses. The SRN1, meanwhile, now resides at the Science Museum of Rotten, a town of 8,000, roughly 80 miles due west of London. The museum was located on a former RAF airfield, where the facilities were large enough to house not only the first practical hovercraft, but also some of the first MRI machines, an assortment of old computers, and some nuclear missiles that the brochure helpfully notes are deactivated. Corgi Toys! made a model of the SRN1. It's no longer in production either, but you can find them occasionally offered for sale by individuals on the internet. On the other hand, you can still order from Corgi a nifty model of the gyrocopter flown by James Bond in You Only Live Twice. Our sister publication, EDN, has more on the SRN1 in one of its EDN Moments articles. The link for that is on this episode's webpage, which you can find at www.eetimes.com slash podcast. So that's it for the weekly briefing for the week ending July 24th. Thanks for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned and other multimedia. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.